Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today, my guest is the author of Sound Systems Design and Optimization, was the keynote speaker at this year's AES Conference on Education, is the director of system optimization at Meyer Sound, and most importantly, recently wrote the foreword for my book, Sound Design Live. Bob McCarthy, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Nathan. <laughs> so... Bob works on designing and optimizing sound systems for people like Cirque du Soleil and Meyer Sound, as well as teaching seminars on the subject. Bob, as a way of introduction, could you talk about some of the interesting projects you've been working on recently? I just was yesterday at uh, Jazz and Lincoln Center, the Allen Room, which is, um, if you know Wynton Marsalis and you know New York City Jazz, uh, it's a very, very cool venue. It has... um, a gigantic piece of glass behind the stage so that when you're in the audience, you you spend all of your time looking at uh, the park and all of the cars driving along when you should be, of course, paying attention to the musicians. But <laughs> <Nice>. uh, <laughs> but it's a it's just an incredibly beautiful place. And we're, uh, we're tweaking up the sound system there and we're adding in um, the Constellation um, electroacoustic architecture system which oh, will really? allow us That's a yeah pretty big deal oh it's a big deal so it'll allow us to uh make the room uh very wet if it, if that's what's uh, correct for the for the particular music and it'll allow them to do actual concerts without the pa system using just the acoustics of the room for stuff uh, from juilliard university where you've got a lot of mu- musicians right next door there and it opens up a lot of opportunities variable acoustics does yeah, I, I didn't understand what Constellation was for a long time. So if anybody wants to, we can give a short explanation here, but if anybody wants to read more about it, there are a lot of stories on the Meyer Sound website. And the reason is that it's not immediately understandable is that it's actually a compilation of lots of different pieces of hardware and um, the setups can range from very small to very large. It's not just like one speaker. So that's why... Um, I think it took me a while to understand what it, what, what it is. Well, I can give a, a two-minute uh, boil down of that if you want at some point. Actually, if you want to do that now, that'd be great. I mean, I think it's one of the most interesting things going on at Meyer Sound. Okay, well, and to simply uh, put, uh, what a room is, is direct sound going in and hitting walls and hitting floors and hitting ceilings and then buzzing around and doing it all again for as many paths as it takes until it finally hits your ears. And uh, what we do in Constellation is we put speakers uh, along the walls and along the ceiling. We would do it in the floor if we could. Um, But we basically are going to remake those walls. And then we put microphones wherever we can, which usually is the up in the ceiling. And the direct sound goes into those microphones and then goes through our, our processing, which distributes the acoustic sound going into the mics and then puts it out into the speakers all around you and essentially is going to um, add extra reflections that are just like regular reflections, but we have the ability to add as many layers onto your walls and onto your ceiling as would be appropriate to make your hall more reverberant than it was to make it give you a wider range of, uh, of appropriateness for your venue for the program material. On this particular job, Bob, could you sort of insert yourself into the ecosystem of the performing arts there? Because you didn't build this equipment, you didn't sell it to them, um, and you didn't physically install it, but you came in at different points along that path and then at the end, right? Well, it's a, it's a work in progress right now. It's the, the, the work is ongoing. I'll be going back there uh, again tomorrow. Um, so this installation is just happening right now. The, the main PA installation has been in there for quite a few years. But the room, in spite of its, uh, of its 
very uh, gigantic piece of glass is really quite dry. And it's a very much a, uh, a live end, dead end kind of experience. Mm. All, the, all the live is at the front side. And um, the Constellation will allow us to be able to add a, a very um, a controlled amount of, of immersive uh, reverberation um, overhead and surrounding you on the left uh, center and behind you. So we can essentially selectively liven up the walls for the appropriate uh, material. Before this, people sitting in the back of the room may have felt like they're really far away. They're not very present. And maybe the Constellation system will help them feel more involved and like they're closer to the musician? It's actually the reverse of that. Um, because the room is, is quite dry, you feel very close, but you don't feel you don't feel the feeling so much of a room surrounding you and enveloping you with the kind of you know the warmth of of a of a natural reverberation. Okay. Now, now this is not to say. Please don't misunderstand that this is to say that the room is a troubled room. It's not a troubled room. It's a very good room. It's very well designed. But what this gives us is is the, the situation is it's a fixed set of acoustics. So it's optimized for a particular range. And when you bring in variable acoustics, then you can open up your range and you can, for a particular artist that wants to do gospel music, you can make the room become much more feeling like it's covered with plaster or something more appropriate for that particular uh, style of music. Mm -hmm. If they're going to do hip hop in there, you turn the thing off. You want it as as dry as possible because of that you want that music to be super super impulsive and responsive. But if you're getting into things that uh, you know want to have the room hang with you longer, like a lot of strings and things, well, that uh, this this you know moves the optimal moves that the room closer into the optimal range for that particular type of, of input material. Give me another example of something you've been working on recently, maybe something a little bit different than installing a Constellation system. Uh, well, I'm going to be uh, heading to Manchester, England on Saturday. Uh, I'll be working with uh, a new production of Wicked, the musical. Um, worked on that in, uh, in several iterations around the world. It's a it's a very, very successful musical. <clears throat> it has uh, Tony Miola is the sound designer, and then I'll also work with Kai Harada, his associate, who is uh, quite the sound designer in his own right. Um, and um, it's a it's a interesting musical. The um, it has a very um, intensive uh, set scenic structure. If you've ever seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. It's got a gigantic dragon over the center of the proscenium and the entire um, proscenium is is covered with scenic elements it's uh, they they literally take the whole front of the hall and cover it with scenic and so we have quite the uh, architectural challenge to get our sound out dodging uh, wings of dragons and uh, various um, <clears throat> set pieces but it's a it's a it's a wonderful uh, design with a lot of uh, surround, with a dedicated uh, center system that's uh, mostly voice and a left and right that's mostly music, and they have the ability to matrix in whatever else is needed in a particular venue. Uh, if they need a little bit more voice down low or a little more music up high, so I'll be in charge of tuning that system. I'll go to, um, they're opening up four productions. I'll be in Manchester Saturday. I'll be in Auckland uh, the next week. And then a few weeks later, Mexico City. And I can't make this Seoul Korea production. So uh, my friend Steve Bush will take care of that one. Wow. So are you just showing up there a week before the touring production arrives? Um, I will be there the day before cast on stage. That, okay. is my, that is my traditional time to meet sound systems in the theatrical world is they want to have it be that uh, the day that the cast walks on stage that the sound system is, is fully tweaked out. 
So I'm working now with Tony and with Kai and with uh, and the local people in the local halls to get all the angles that we want. We have a one-day surgical strike with uh, we have 16 uh, microphones uh, set up uh, in each room, and we have one day to knock out about 30 something channels of processing. Uh, maybe maybe it's more like 40. 40 or 48 it's a it's a very very boom 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 get in just knock down systems one after another until this thing is tuned and walk out the door and get on a flight and go home that is not much time i assume you have oh. some assistance moving mics around as fast as possible we we do have assistance yes and we we have uh they make sure everything is in place for us to be able to just turn on and 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 go and then if some if we uncover something that needs to be changed you know like let's say i need a display angle change we'd send somebody up to do that and we'd move on to checking a different system while that was being orchestrated that's the beauty of all the multiple mics is you can multitask and uh, move on to other things You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. So I'm trying to kind of give people introduction to the work you do and your book and what is system design and optimization. I say this because maybe five years ago, I didn't know about any of this stuff. So I'm, I'm imagining that there will be some people listening who were like me five years ago. Um, I want to jump in and start talking about the book, but I'm sure, like I said, there are some people who have never heard of the book or system optimization for that matter. So. I hope you don't think this sounds weird, but do you think you could just make the case for system design and optimization? Why do we still need to measure and optimize? Why can't I just push a button and have it all done automatically? Oh, well, the reason you can't just uh, go right to your artistic place and just go and start mixing is because your, your canvas might be have a big giant rip in it. You just can't start painting if you're... If, if the thing that you're trying to paint on is all smudged up and twisted and turned, unless that's really, that's your particular thing that you like to paint on. <laughs> right. Um, what the deal about system optimization <clears throat> and my, my history in system design comes from my history in system optimization is that it's a, it's a really, um, it's a scientific side of this industry. It's dedicated to a very simple scientific concept, not to make it sound good, but to make it sound the same. What we are is in the, in the business of design and optimization, we are a uh, waveform delivery service. The musicians and the artists that are mixing the show create the waveform. They hand it to us out of the mix console. And from there, now it's a matter of delivery. We want to have that waveform get to the audience you want to have it get to the audience in a uniform way so that people sitting uh, in the left side or the right side or the near side or the far side or under the balcony or over the balcony get the same uh, artistic experience as much as is uh, physically possible. So it's a very objective uh, pursuit. You place microphones around the room. You look at the signal sent and you say, okay, what's different in this picture? And you work to rectify that over the space to make every space, every place in the hall have as close to the same sound as possible. I think this is one of the biggest misunderstandings about system optimization is that it's not about making a room flat or making a room anything except for the same everywhere, whatever you want it to be. Right. I make no, I have no care whatever if you like chocolate, if you like vanilla, if you like strawberry. When people say to me, but I don't want it flat, I say, okay, just draw me a picture of what you want. I'll make that picture happen everywhere. I don't care if they want it to, to have a, a 6 dB boost at the low end or a 10 dB boost at the low end or a 20 dB boost at the low end. I'm just going to make sure that everybody gets it the same picture. So it makes it something that is a, a quest that you can take on in a very objective way. You just look at the data, 
and you, 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 you push the speaker angles, you push the speaker levels, you push the relative delay between things and uh, the timing between things and the EQ between things until you nudge it to as close to a uniform shape all over the room as you can. Bob, you were the keynote speaker at the Audio Engineering Society's 50th conference on education this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't able to find much information about it online. I was hoping I'd be able to find a transcript or uh, some audio. Do you know if your keynote would be available on the AES site? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't know. Okay. They, they certainly did videotape it, and they certainly acted like that, but it's... Um, <clears throat> This was uh, very much a, a startup volunteer feeling to this thing. What you had was that for the first time, this is the first time ever we had a conference where we brought together everybody that was, that's trying to teach audio at, at these various universities, um, college and technical schools around the world. It's a really interesting thing because you know, audio engineering is still an a amazingly young pursuit. If you look at it against civil engineering, which goes back to ancient uh, Greece and whatnot, and you look at even electrical engineering, uh, which goes back a couple hundred years, you know, the audio engineering, the way that we know it, starts at Woodstock, for God's sakes. <laughs> uh, and you, know, you can't teach something until you've got a, a generation of elders that can can pass the knowledge on, and yes, we are now that generation, but but um, it's a very fast-moving field, and uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenging field to study. Uh, it's a challenging field to teach. Well, I, I agree. When I was looking for schools uh, 12 years ago, there were maybe only a handful, and I tried to apply to most of them, and now I was talking to a kid who's looking at music schools and studying sound engineering a week ago, and there are a lot more. So I will try to find out if there's going to be a video available or let me know if you find one, and we'll post a link on the site when I publish this interview. Until then, um, would you mind just telling us some of the main points that you made during your talk? Some of the main points that I made in the talk is, is number one, is... Uh, it's a it's a it's a funny little point to teach, but uh, it's a little bit of uh, help us to get perspective of how challenging the world of of audio is. And I put up a slide that's called "Why is sound so difficult?" Uh, it's like, well, because it's invisible. Right. Number two, it's almost inaudible, which makes everybody go, well, "What do you mean by that?" <laughs> that sounds really stupid. Well, it's because it's only audible in the exact location where we are standing right now. And when your job is to make it sound the same everywhere or to make it make, make a recording that you th- is gonna sound and be played back in somebody's car or all over the world, or you're doing live sound and you're sit down there at the mixed position on the floor and you wanna know what's happening upstairs in the rafters, it's a very difficult thing because you don't know anything about anywhere else but where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's, it's all experienced in our head. There are so many things in sound that have, uh, have linear mechanisms that you can measure with acoustics that are, that are experienced logarithmically by our brain system. So we have to do all of this intellectual conversion in our brain to be able to understand how linear mechanisms are messing with our logarithmic brains. It's, uh, you know, people think the log scale and these things were just, were just developed to torture us so that made making sound more complicated, but they're actually, (laughs) (laughs) they're actually what we need to deal with, with something that has a million to one factor in, in level difference. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's like, well, so I, so I gave, you know, that sort of perspective of, of helping, try to help people to understand why it is that this is, is a hard thing because you always have this scientific and this artistic side uh, that merge together in the experience. And you cannot ignore the science, nor can you ignore, ignore the art. So you have to really get and understand 
what goes on in our heads and you have to understand what goes on in the actual physics of the sound systems and the physics of the rooms. You have way too many people who just want to blow through the, the, the science side and say, well, I just want to be an artist. Leave me alone. Well, that's not realistic when, when you want to get your artistic message, message delivered. It's going to have to get through the science to get there. So we, we have to be bilingual and uh, us, us science side people have to be sensitive to the artistic people and it has to go both ways. And as a teacher, you really have to be very, very bilingual in these things. It's hard to do. When people want to sell books and people want to have an audience for their writing, they don't want to torture them with a lot of science. And so they try to make it as easy as possible and they end up cheating a lot and generalizing a lot? One of the foundations of my teaching, uh, uh, which goes back, so I've, been, I've been teaching seminars since 1987 um, and been writing since roughly then. One of my foundational core principles has always been you have to be able to teach this stuff at, at about a level that's 3dB above where people can handle it. <laughs> Okay, so that they're driven to be able to to push up to that level. But if you put it at 20 dB above, then they just switch it off. So you you have to you have to forget about the calculus equations and the integral math. And as soon as you get into the Greek letters, everybody just kind of rolls their eyes and gives up. Right. So I I do lots and lots of pictures, lots of graphs, <laughs> and lots of analogies. Uh, and that really helps people to to keep on, uh, and I call it, uh, you know, that basically people, most people in this industry have science as a second language. Because it's extremely rare that you're going to walk into some uh, place and find some audio engineer who will tell you they got into the business because <clears throat> they'd had a lifelong fascination as a child with acoustical physics. Yes. <laughs> it's much more likely that they wanted to be in the band. Everyone has a similar story about being in a rock band in school and then trying to figure out what to do when they got into college and then kind of discovering maybe recording or sound engineering and discovering how fun it is and that you can still be involved in the performing arts, you can still play, but there's also this scientific side that can really appeal to that side of your brain. Jazz improv is my lecture style. I get, a, I get a basic chord structure, and then from there, it's improv. So I had about, uh, you know, about a dozen basic points that I wanted to, to hit on, and, and then it just goes from there, from what I feel and see from, from the people. Um, <clears throat> but I did, I did weave in some, some uh, pictures of, uh, of, of uh, my childhood and of my, my moving into a life of crime as I was supposed to be. Uh, everybody, everybody had plans for me. I was supposed to go into the construction business of my family. And then there was my uncle, the Catholic priest, who wanted me to uh, follow in his footsteps. Really? Mm, that was so not going to happen. <laughs> for I don't know if it's still this way, but for a long time, Bob had his profession on LinkedIn as a shipbuilder. Yes, I think it still is. Uh, Excellent. I'm the. That's how you got that job at Meyer Sound. That's right. <laughs> okay. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. There are a couple of big lessons that I got from the first reading of your book. The first one was that graphic EQs are tone shaping tools, and except maybe in the war zone that is stage monitor land, they rarely serve any useful purpose in system optimization. But that's what everyone uses them for, and that's what was so exciting to learn about, because it's still the number one tool that 
everyone reaches for when they're trying to improve game before feedback, uh, deal with room summation. Can we talk about for a second why graphic EQs are still so popular and yet not at all the best tool for either of those jobs? First of all, I want to mention that I live a charmed life because I have not seen a graphic EQ put in front of me with, with someone to tell me, now use this to, to, to do the optimization. Go, make it. Make oh it my go. God, at least 15 years now. So I'm pretty lucky. But <clears throat> the graphic EQ is essentially a series of, of logarithmically spaced um, filter sets with a fixed bandwidth. And there's nothing in physics, there's nothing in the acoustical physics of, of speakers in rooms and speakers in speakers that is log spacing and keeps a log, a fixed log bandwidth. So in other words, it's a tool with two fixed parameters, neither of which is possible to actually obtain by the thing that you're actually trying to counter, uh, which is the interaction of speakers and speakers and the interaction of speakers in room, which is always a linear series of peaks and dips, which to put it in log terms, the first offender is an octave wide, a half octave wide is the next one, and a third octave, and a fourth octave, and a fifth octave, and it goes on like this series. So that is always the target. That's the only actual thing that can happen when two speakers play together or a speaker plays with a wall or floor. And so you have a tool that cannot possibly uh, make a countermeasure to this particular measure. And of course, that's what equalization is supposed to be, is something to create the inverse equal in order to bring it back. It's the complement in order to bring it back to equal, and it's a tool that can't possibly do that. So I guess people just don't know that. And I didn't know that, and I thought it was normal that there were graphic EQs everywhere still. Um, and I, I don't know, I worked on a play a couple of years ago and I specified a bunch of parametric EQs and I really had to explain why we needed those instead of the normal thing that they got. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's in the world of digital signal processing now, it's, it's become less and less of an issue because uh, you know, either, either you might have an option of selecting one or the other and it's, it's all just memory so you can go that route or uh, you can, or they tend to have uh, uh, both of them, and you can just use the one that's applicable. Um, the uh, one of the tools I use a lot, the Galileo, segregates off and has a graphic EQ on the front end where uh, where the artist can do their shaping, and then it has parametric EQs on the back end, which is where I do the system tuning, and mm -hmm. then everybody's got what they what they're what they're happy with. You know, the reason why they are popular is that you can do a, a basic ear training and have a, a, a closest, you know, you can guess within a third of an octave and find the right guy that's giving you trouble. The problem with it is, is that you, what tends to happen, what people don't realize, is that the shape that those devices make is not the shape that you see on the graphic representation. If you want to make a particular shape, you have to look at it on an analyzer and you will find that it can be extremely different than uh, what you see. You do that nice kind of thing where you gently bump three or four filters down and you'll end up with a, with a two and a half octave wide 10 dB hole when you think you're only putting in uh, three or four dB because mm -hmm. this, the, the filters gang up on each other and uh, it can be quite exciting. So the second big lesson that I learned reading your book is that in most situations, setting up a stereo sound system is kind of pointless. Um, that's because there's actually a very small portion of the audience that will actually hear in stereo. And yet, this still seems like it's the most common setup. So why is stereo sort of a myth and maybe why are people trying to hold on to it? Well, that's a, that's a very important and, uh, and prevalent situation. The, the, let's, let's first clarify the difference between stereo and having speakers on the left and right of the stage. Uh, having speakers on the left and right of the stage is... You can fight it, but it's going to be there. 
the, the only other option is everything as a, as a center cluster, in which case the image is flying straight way up in the vertical, totally stationary, and to put it in artistic terms, no fun to listen to. <laughs> right. Even a completely mono system that's spread across the horizon has a, um, has a spread sonic image that and a, and it can have a low sonic image that can feel more immersive uh, to the uh, to the audience and feel better connected to the spread musicians on stage, even if it has no actual spread to it. You're talking about the opposite of what you're normally looking for, though, right? That's a less linear experience that's putting different sound in different seats. Well, the deal is that if it was completely mono and you had it segregated so that the left side covered the left side and the right side covered the right side and, and they met in the middle just, just the right amount so that you get yourself a unity gain thing across, then you will have the most uniform experience that you can across the horizon. Okay. Okay? Uh, with, a, with two sources. Um, the the more from a from a statistically uniform point of view, you're you're better still to have that mono overhead source. But like I said, people like to to have that since they're looking at a spread source across the stage, uh, they prefer to have uh, a spread source across the horizon of their listening experience. And there's no point in arguing with that. Left and right is here to stay. The question then is how much of your left to cross-pollinate into how much of the right. And that's really what, the, what, the, what we really have to, to know about, okay? So if you are going to go and say, well, I'm gonna have two completely separate channels and I'm gonna have left that's completely independent from, from the right, then you're gonna mix everybody in one or the other, then the left has to cover the whole hall uniformly and the right has to cover the whole hall uniformly. And you, you can't, put anything pan to the center. This is essentially what goes on in cinema. And what do they do? Well, they put the voices in a speaker that's in the center. So you have left, center, and right. But of course, we can't put a speaker right in the center uh, except for way up high. Mm -hmm. The cinema puts it at the same level, left, center, and right. So that works out a lot nicer. So what we do in practice is mix... Uh, in the most common mix is 90% uh, mono and 10% and of stuff panned one way or the other. Well, mm -hmm, okay, now, you, now you're talking salt and pepper is the stereo part. So what you want to do is have a little, just a little bit of uh, cross-pollination in the middle where you get the benefits of stereo and the deficits of the overlap issues that degrade the frequency response and the intelligibility in the center, but at least you have a push-pull of benefits and, uh, and costs. You talk about this a lot in the book. There's not a perfect design for a room. There's not a perfect sound system. You are selecting which characteristics you want to promote and which you would like to, I don't know, demote. Mm -hmm. One of the things about this is that you have to say, well, what would be the criteria for deciding how much of the, uh, what percentage of the room to put in this cross-pollination zone? <clears throat> and the, the answer is, it's in your head. There's a limited uh, amount of time and level that our body will tolerate with its, with its two-channel listening system to have that stereo experience. Okay, and so what you have to look at now is that there's about a five to seven millisecond range where you are going to be able to move images around between left and right and have them sort of dial up into the places in between. And so if you look at a room now and you say, well, if I'm seven milliseconds closer to the left side than the right side, then I'm beyond the rescue zone of being able to experience that panoramic movement. So you can chart a room, and I, I generally use, I'm, I, I use 10 milliseconds as my number so that I'm, shall we say, it's, it's for sure done. Mm -hmm. And what you, an easy way to do that is if you have a, a prediction program is you put out 50 hertz 
and put that into your left and right speakers and you look at the area that's covered by 50 hertz before the, the there's a, a big bulge in the middle and then there's two rivers of cancellation on the sides, that's where your stereo is done, is where those rivers are. Oh, that's every, good. Everybody outside of the rivers is in the, you don't get stereo, too bad, sorry, zone. Now, if you have a fan-shaped hall, a big, wide fan shape, well, think about that. You get to seven, if, if you have a fan-shaped hall and widely spaced speakers, holy God, you get about five seats wide in that 10 millisecond zone. If you've got a shoebox hall that's quite skinny, okay, then you're going to get a lot of speakers in that, in that 10 millisecond zone. But it, of course, it's the ones with the fan-shaped halls that have the greatest fantasies about, oh my God, we're going to have stereo in every seat. It's like, no, you're not. Right. Or you're going to have one in every seat. Okay, I have another question related to stereo. Um, you were just talking about using a prediction program to test a 50 hertz signal. Uh, or to make a 50 hertz uh, prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing what we know from that prediction and from reading your book, I don't understand why it's still so common to see left and right ground stacks of subs. Isn't that just creating phase problems for anywhere but the center? Or what are they doing with those stacks? Why aren't they just all in the center? Uh, that is a very good question. I haven't designed a system with the traditional pile of left and pile of right subs in quite a long time because it's, it's just too flagrant where you get what I call the, the nose of doom. And, you know, you get this gigantic nose in the middle and then you see this, these river valleys of cancellation moving out from the center. But the, the problem, people say, well, I'll put the, put the river valleys on the aisles. It's like, no, that doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Because the river, uh, the 30 hertz river is, is much farther off to the side than the 35 hertz, than the 40 hertz, than the 50 hertz. Every, at every frequency, the river is getting closer and the nose is getting skinnier. And so there isn't a place where the hole happens. There is a place that's moving at every frequency. And then as you get to high enough, you've got multiple rivers and valleys. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a completely untunable uh, situation. It's, a, well, just throw your hands up and say, well, uh, whatever you got, you got. And I don't like that. Uh, the, the, the very center gets all the bass notes and then... You know, every time you move off to the side, it's like, well, you get three out of four bass notes, and you get, uh, you know, five out of six, um, and and it's like that. Completely uh, unique listening experience. Ah, uh, yeah, there we go, custom. So what 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 you have to watch out though, in um, when you move them to the center, is it's extremely easy to get yourself to where the coverage is narrows up way, 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 way too much. So uh, you have to take some measures to um, decrease the narrowing that happens at the center because any, any spread line of speakers will favor the triangulation towards the center and disfavor the, if you, if you run the line straight out to its side. So along the, if, if, the, if we have eight, eight subwoofers spaced a meter apart across the front of the stage, if you were to look straight to the side of the room, that would be the place with the lowest response. And if you have a hall that's kind of wide, that might be, might be too much, mm-hmm. too much narrowing. So then you can do things like um, either actually arcing the, the, the subwoofers uh, in an angle if you've got the room or if you've got a rounded stage, or you can arc them by timing by using uh, a sequence of delay times that will uh, uh, make a virtual arc of the speaker and and uh, spread the, the sound image out, but keep it still as a uniform uh, response without those nasty series of, of mountains and valleys uh, just off-center. 
So just to make a quick ad for Bob's book, these are the awesome kind of things you learn how to do when you read sound system design and optimization. None of your colleagues know how to do yet. Like there are rumors that float around or somebody read an article. Bob's book is really where you get the tools so you can create any kind of shape you want. Like he was just talking about with a subwoofer array. Sound design. In your book, you mention the massive general resistance of the audio community to sound analyzers. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this, and um, I want to know how I can help. What is the golden ticket that gets me time on the production schedule for optimization and support from my colleagues for measurement? Um, that is a very good question. I want someone to call me up and say, We've added an extra hour to the, to the production schedule so you can come in and get all that stuff set up, and we really want you to measure all these things. We can't wait. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there's a number of, of logical approaches that you can take. Okay. Number one, you can ask them, are they giving the lighting people time to focus the lights? And the answer is yes. That's good. And you say, well, God, that's pretty easy to focus lights because you can see where they're pointed. Think of how much harder it is to focus the sound because you can't see where it's pointed. The only way we can see where it's pointed is we got to put mics out there and we got to measure to find out where it's pointed because nobody can just look and see where it's pointed. That's why, why it's a lot more important for us to get out there and get these tools because sound is invisible. So another way that I'd like to say to people is that are you planning on selling all of the seats? (laughs) okay and the answer is yes of course I said well don't you think you'd like me to know and make sure that there's good sound at all of the seats Uh, yeah okay well that's what we do when we measure that's what it's about it's about finding out where the sound goes there's only a limited amount that you can you can you can guess the guys that do the lighting they put their they they might pre-assemble a truss back in the shop, but they don't expect that when they put that truss up that all the lights are going to be pointed exactly where they're supposed to go. And the same goes for sound. You've got to have time to be able to focus the thing. And these tools, these analysis tools, are the way that we see the sound in a way that is so much clearer than, than just walking around and, and being three blind mice stumbling around trying to to uh, find where the sound is. That's the key things. And the other thing that I emphasize to people, and this is really important, is I don't need the hall to be silent. I tune sound systems, and I'm, and I'm completely serious about this, I have tuned sound systems with jackhammers going. Wow. And, yes. Uh, you know, we were doing the Tokyo Disney theme park, uh, and... They were way behind schedule and we were doing the outdoor system. And it was like, you just, you know, we got to tune this system now. There was no telling these guys they can't, they can't have their jackhammers because they were two months behind. They were in penalty phase. They were blah, blah, blah. So we just have to work with that. In theatrical mode, I swear to you, it is an absolute rule in theater, theater that anytime a measurement mic is put up in a room that somebody's got to generate sparks. <laughs> So a grinder comes out or or at the very least a vacuum cleaner. Um, And these things are okay. It's not these, we have the tools that can tell my stimulus, my, my, what I'm sending to the system, I know it's not coming from that grinder. So we have the brains to be able to know what's coming from the sound system and what's coming from spurious noise sources. So we don't, A, have to be all very loud, and B, we don't have to be alone. So I can do this while the friggin' guys are, are uh, setting mics uh, on stage. I, I can do it while uh, the set pieces are being banged on. I can do it while the light, somebody's up in the trust, blah, blah, blah. And this, is a, this means that you might get a lot more time than you might otherwise realize. Another nice trick that I learned from a system design seminar at Meyer Sound is that if you mix classic rock into your pink noise signal, people tend to be a lot more happy with that. 
Yes, uh, there are a number <laughs> of people that do that. Just no country. Right. Um, okay. Um, I really want to talk about prioritizing and order of operations and optimizing a sound system because a lot of times it can seem overwhelming. It's a big job, so we don't even start. But there are always things we can do with a limited amount of time. If I arrive at a venue and let's say I only have 15 minutes before the artist arrives or before something else has to happen and I can't work in there anymore, what's the most important thing I can do right away to get started? Well, 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Let, well, let's say that you're not setting up your equipment for 15 minutes. Let's say you have 15 minutes of maybe measurement time. You already have everything set up. Okay. Well, if you have a... Let, let's just go with a, 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 an, an extremely compressed amount of time. Well, okay. also, you know what? We could also just do order of operations. So if you have um, a, the smallest amount of time, here's the one thing you can do. If you yeah. have a little bit more time, the yes. next thing. Okay, Okay. so the, the, the first thing you have to do is you've got to make sure that the very most basic things are correct in the system, that the, that the speakers, the correct sound is coming out of the correct speakers. I've had, uh, I did a recent tuning of a system and I was going in a system that's been up for seven years and the, uh, you know, it's like, well, we got to go through these things one by one. Oh no, it's, it's been running for seven years. The, the, the feed to the, it was a three-way speaker and the feed to the low driver was going into the mid driver and the feed to the mid was going into the, to the, the mid right. was going to the low and the low was going to the mid. They had a awesome. three-way system of which two of the three were, were backwards and they never wondered why those they always wondered why those speakers didn't sound the same as the other ones. Well, and they, you know, all these cockamamie theories about a a little reflection off of a of a steel bar or this or that. It's like the basic stuff. So you've got to go and get the basic stuff to make sure your basic cabinet is is wired right and that the right sound is coming out of the right speakers and that they're all functioning. That's number one. I would rather have if I can only do one thing. That's what I'm going to do. If I get to do the second thing, it's going to be to work on the position of the speaker. Because there's no more important factor once you know the sound is going to come out of that speaker than to figure out if it's pointed in the right place mm -hmm. or if it's splayed the right angle to its neighbor or if it's spaced the right number of meters apart from its, uh, its neighboring front fill or whatever it is. So we're going to look at those three parameters, aim, relative splay, relative spacing, I call it the old real estate uh, saying, location, location, location. Mm -hmm. You're also going to look to see if there's an I-beam uh, in, in front of it. Here we had a, a, a recent tuning that I did, and it had speakers behind scrim on the left, the right, and the rear. And it had speakers uh, not behind scrim in the front. And they, they couldn't get the, 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 the things to match. Well, the speakers in front had no obstruction. Speakers on the left side had 6 dB loss in the high end from the scrim it was going through. The speakers on the right side had a different scrim. It was, <laughs> it was yeah, literally, it was not 8 or 9 dB there. And on the back was an entirely different scrim that was, I wouldn't even call it a scrim. It was like a, it was like a condom. It was rubber. Wow. And it was 14 dB down. Wow. And so, you know, the, the tuning... The, of little details was completely was completely uh, shall we say perfunctory compared to like job number one is that we've got to overcome and neutralize the 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 screening effects of these of these three different surfaces everything else is goes to the background so you've got to do the do you've got to look and see what are the most grievous errors you'll get people want to talk about some some exotic filter that they think is going to solve everything when right. actually there's an I-beam in front of the speaker. Yeah, people think that you're coming in to make a bunch of big EQ adjustments or tell them about expensive things they have to buy, but really you just need to, you know, have a more acoustically better scrim in front of the screen or, you know, point the speakers in the right direction, those really basic things. Exactly, and people think because of my analyzer has a resolution of 48 points per octave, which is 
you know, that's a, a piano key split into four parts mm-hmm. is, is how fine I'm looking at it. They think because I see it at that level of detail that I'm going to be putting in micro filters all over the place and that's going to be so cool. And actually, it's completely the inverse. Because I see in such fine detail, I can see the things that are going to be global trends over large areas, they're easily discernible from those that are just microscopic events at a uh, half a seat wide. And those big boys, the octave wides and the two-thirds of an octave wide and, uh, and maybe half octave wide, those are the guys I'm going after. But I'm able to precisely find them because I have enough resolution to, to, to have them never wiggle out of my sight. Bob, there are a couple things that I've found very challenging to do in the field. Uh, one is setting the splay between two speakers without marked rigging hardware to show me what I'm doing. And the other is finding the on-axis measurement point for an unknown speaker or speaker array. Could you give me a couple of tips for those two tasks? Um, if you have the opportunity to get up close and personal to a speaker, then you know if it's a if it's if it's accessible from uh, you know if it's a ground a low speaker then you can get up close within a couple of meters of it then get get your mic up nice and close and find out what that speaker's near field response is then move yourself back to where the the speaker is supposed to be okay uh, pointed is a good way because what happens in the far field is is still the same animal it's just the it's just that animal with with room and air loss added on to it. So if you can get that, that's great. Otherwise, it, it can be just a simple iterative process. It's, I, I call it the, uh, the childhood game of is it getting hotter or colder? Mm-hmm. I place the mic, uh, take a picture, then I move the mic closer or to the left or the right, and is it getting hotter or colder? If it's growing, I know I'm getting closer to the on-axis point. If it's getting quieter, then I know I'm moving away. The other key thing is that we have this beautiful thing in our advanced analyzers called phase where we can tell the distance. So if I'm staying the same distance and I see it getting bigger, I know that I'm getting closer to on axis. If I'm keeping the same distance and it's getting quieter, well, I know it's the other way. But if I move closer by a row, then you could could have the same thing. You could be moving one dB off axis and moving one dB closer and keep the sound. The sound would end up the same level. But I can tell time. That's the beautiful thing of these analyzers. I know that I'm getting closer because my analyzer measures time. So I'll, I'll keep an eye on that and I'll watch the trends. So it's, you know, it can be in, it's particular in speakers that are behind scrims, like a, like a, like a high proscenium center speaker mm-hmm. where you can't see anything. You literally have to go fishing. There's no way around it. The other thing is, I, I, and I've done this many, many times, I crawl up there with my laser and, uh, and get up there uh, in the dust and find that speaker and see where it's aimed, either with my eyes or with my laser. Sometimes uh, the, the things are so dusty you can't even get the laser to shine through, and that's a hint. I'll sit there with a broom and push the dust out of the, the scrims that are in front of there. Right. People... Yeah, I mean, I literally have done that. People are like, what the hell? It's like, hey, do you, you your eyes can't go through this. Do you think <laughs> 16K is going to be happy to go through that? Like, oh, God, I never thought of that. It's like, just think if you were sound, would you like going through all that dirt and yuck? No. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good tip because I've had this problem trying to find on axis in the far field. And once you already have room summation and other things going on, you move the... F- the measurement microphone a few feet to the left or right and the response changes but the amplitude looks pretty much the same and I move it all around and I I can't find it. So I think measuring in the near field first or as close as I can get to the speaker would help a lot. Right, Then then you have a picture of its original signature and that helps to identify its response 
in the far field. In the far field, we're going to expect to see the very highs attenuated because of air loss, and you're going to be expect to see the lows pushing up because they get uh, the additional local reflections. But the mid-band should be dropping off at pretty close to the old inverse square law, 6 dB per doubling. So now finding the splay angle between two speakers in the field when they're, say, a foot or two apart, and I can't just stick a protractor in there, have mm-hmm. you done anything creative to be able to help you with that? Oh, yeah. Step one, turn off one of the speakers, give me just one of them, and you go and you measure on axis to the A speaker, then keeping your mic uh, close to equidistant, you move the mic until it, it's at the, if you have already, a, if there already is a pair of speakers, then you move to the middle between and then see how many dB down you are. If you are only three dB down, then you know you, you've got too tight of a splay angle. If you're 9 dB down, you've got too narrow of a splay angle. If you're 6 dB down, you've hit it just right. And this is another thing where it seems like that wouldn't help you once speakers are already hung in the air, but that's another thing where you could do in the near field while they're still on the ground uh, or maybe hanging low before you raise them up. Absolutely. And it, and it can help you even if it's, uh, even if I go into this particular civic center and I see that model of speaker and I see that splay angle, I'd still like to measure it and know, okay, now I know for sure that 25 degrees is too narrow for the, for that model of speaker. So the next time I have to, next time I see those speakers, if I can adjust them, I'm going to know to, to get them wider than, than I saw at this blah, 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 Civic Center. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, you have a chance to learn something sometimes, even if you can't apply it to today's, you know it and you can take it forward with you to the next one. Bob, do you carry measurement software with you? I don't have measurement software. I have an analyzer, which is a physical device that's uh, hardware and, uh, and uh, a software operating system. But I don't, I don't have a measurement software program. Do you use wireless transmitters with any of your measurement mics? Um, I'm, a, I'm a bad luck story on that. Uh, I seem to be cursed. I've used them three times and they've, it's broken on me every single time and I lost patience. So I, I know a lot of guys that are very happy with that. What I'd have is multiple microphones. Um, I own eight microphones and I, I certainly can't afford eight wireless transmitters and I'd have to have a, a wireless guy to, to keep all my frequencies happy anyway. <laughs> but what my protocol is, uh, is, uh, is I, I want to have not just a moving mic, but I want to have two mics and three mics and four mics so that when I make a change of a speaker that I can see what it's doing in multiple places mm-hmm. at the same time. That's a key thing. If you make a splay angle change, it's not enough to just know what happens at the center. You've got to know what happens at the, uh, at, the, at the individual on-axis points and at the outside edges too because everybody's affected when you increase or decrease that splay. So I'm a, I'm a multiple mic kind of guy. I have no problem with the wireless mics except that they always break on me personally. The last time I had a job and I came on those and I told the guy my story, he says, well, I'm keeping them in a case. I don't want you to curse them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, That's uh, pretty smart. Since I already mentioned that Bob works at Meyer Sound, you can guess that he owns a SIM system and I guess Meyer Sound doesn't make any uh, measurement microphones, but... If you read any forums, Bob has posted on forums in the past that he owns some M30 Earthworks. And um, yeah, so in case people are wondering what he actually has. The, the SIM analyzer is, is the tool that I use. And um, it's, been, it's been my tool since, well, since 1984 when, when, when we invented it at Meyer Sound. Um, well, I can, and I can just tell people, I don't remember exactly. I think a SIM system, doesn't the SIM system cost something like $10,000? You may not know because you don't work in sales. Yeah. No, yes. no, it does. Okay. It does. Um, and then I think the last time I checked, um, a smart system costs um, between 500 and 1000 And then the software that I use is actually called SatLive, which I think is about $200. And mm-hmm. I like that. So there are a lot of options. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And so the, you know, in your case, what I call is the, you have a, a some assembly required uh, thing. You've got to figure out how to get your, your you got to get what you're going to measure into into your platform. So you've got to get your uh, your your um, sound cards and your mic boxes and your 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 external switching and all of those kind of things to interface the sound into to get it to Sat Live. And the SIM is a is a case of a dedicated system that's complete. It's got all the hardware. You just plug it literally like an umbil umbilical into the sound system. I can be I can be networked into sixty four um, equalizers and sixty four microphones. Uh, patch, 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 and I'm ready to go. So it's just a case of uh, the scale that I work on happens to be. I don't get jobs for little things. That's just that's just my particular life course. Mm -hmm. I do. Uh, uh, I'm kind of the spaghetti man. When a when a system reaches overwhelming complexity and pile, levels of spaghetti, that's when they call. That's when they call me in. Bob, I like come to come in and fix it. Exactly. I like to think of myself as a Harvey Keitel from the uh, Pulp Fiction movie. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the fixer. Oh, okay, we got a mess here. Oh, Cleaning up the blood of the sound uh, system. There you go. That's all me. over the car. You need to go in the back seat, scoop up all those little pieces of brain and skull. Get it out of there. Exactly. That's gross. Um... <laughs> Okay, I want to. I know you need to go. I want to ask you one more quick question. This is a service industry. It's all about making people happy. Um, a lot of the times, I want to do things with speakers that other people don't like. Um, I feel like it's best for the phase alignment if the subwoofers are all stacked together in one place. Um, the client thinks that that looks bad, and the DJ thinks that I set it up wrong. So if I do something to make it look symmetrical, and yet don't connect half of those speakers, everyone's happy. So sometimes I feel like there are these tricks um, that are like a psychological strategy maybe or the way you communicate with a client and an artist that are just as important as all of the planning and sound system design that we did. Um, so I, there's not really a question there, but I'm wondering if you agree with that and if you find yourself doing the same thing. There's a, a related very closely related important area in in this field of work. Essentially, you're coming in to to a place, and you're gonna you're gonna do this kind of surgery operation on somebody's sound system, and then leave them with this thing to hopefully realize their artistic goal. And you may be in a situation where somebody else has designed this system, and it's very important that you, A, get them to realize their design goals, but B, you may, have to, you may have to tell them that the way that they've designed it is going to not realize their goals, that this splay angle is wrong, that that speaker needs to be moved or that speaker needs to be turned off or, these, or reallocated to a different job. And it's a very important thing to learn how to get that done without making anybody feel bad. And uh, I, I really worked hard. I learned this from partly from the Japanese. I did a lot of work in Japan and they're experts at saving face. It's a big piece of their culture. Mm -hmm. And they taught me uh, good ways to be able to bring the client to an understanding you know, and show, demonstrate to them the interesting things you just found about this speaker interaction. What do you think we should do. Of course, I know exactly what we should do, but I'm going to bring it to them and have them go, oh, wow, maybe we should, maybe we should increase display angles. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly what I would do. So, <laughs> so you bring it to those kind of places so that everybody is a hero. You never want to humiliate a client, especially in front of the people that they're going to work with or in front of uh, um, their client, because a lot of times I might be called in by a consultant to tune the system, and the consultant got paid a hundred grand to do this design, and then I have to go and, for no money, redesign the thing because it's designed wrong. But I have to make sure that everybody still looks good, mm -hmm. um, and that's a really important thing. Because here's the deal: if you fix somebody's sound system but you humiliate them, you'll never work with them again because they can't allow you in their house where you might humiliate them, mm -hmm. even if you saved their butt. Mm -hmm. 
But if you if you did it in a way that made made them happy and made them feel good and everybody, I don't mind. I don't at all mind somebody else thinking that somebody else was the hero. It's like it all as, as long as they're at the end of the day they're happy with the installation, and they think that somebody else was the one that figured out that the aims were all wrong. I'm I'm cool with that. It's okay. I think you should write an article about this. There, these are the kind of things that you only learn by working on a bunch of jobs and making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Bob, thank you so much for talking with me today. Where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> the, no. well it's just my blog is so, so neglected. Uh, I'm, I'm just so filled with work these days, which is a good thing. I'm doing a lot of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But I guess um, bobmccarthy.com, the world's most neglected website and blog, would be a place. But, you know, you can, you can write me on Facebook or you can just write to Bob at bobmccarthy.com if you have questions. I try to answer everybody's questions that they, that they send to me, and I get a lot. Uh, and I do try to personally respond. So you can find me, Bob, at bobmccarthy.com. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. And, um, and I do um, publish regularly about six articles a year in Sound and Video Contractor. Okay. So you'll, uh, if you look in that, every, pretty much every other, every other month you'll find something on various subjects there. I will post all of these links on the website uh, when this interview comes out because... Bob also teaches seminars regularly, but he doesn't always post those on his Facebook page or on his website. You have to go to the Meyer site, which is the best place to find out about them because that's where you have to register anyway. Yeah, all of my seminars are are Meyer uh, at this point, so you'll find it on the Meyer seminar page. Sound design. Hey, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it, rate it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. 